Hi, everybody. I'm Deacon Allie. And uh, I'm still a little bit new here. And I hope that you will still like me after I tell you that before I moved to Tulsa, I spent most of my adult life in the greater Los Angeles area. Uh, there are many wonderful things about LA. Uh, most obviously, the weather. The weather is spectacular. Malibu beaches, not bad. I'm a big fan. Disneyland is in the greater LA area, as is the best donut shop in the world, Donut Man in Glendora, California. If you are there in May, June, and July, get the fresh strawberry donut. You guys, it is life-changing. It'll make you a Christian. <laughs> Another wonderful thing about LA is really, really, really good Mexican food. We're talking correct Mexican food, which is Baja-style Mexican food, not any of this Tex-Mex nonsense that you all call Mexican food around here. Uh, it has nothing to do with cheese sauce. I'm so sorry, my queso-loving friends. It's tasty, but it's not Mexican. Admittedly, there are also many weird things about LA. Um, home prices, for instance, pretty weird. Gas prices, weird. Food, price, okay, prices. Prices in general in Los Angeles are weird. Hollywood Boulevard, also weird. There's the people in the costumes. There, it's, it's a little bit weird. How long it takes to get absolutely anywhere in Los Angeles is weird. It feels normal when you're there, but then you get away from it and you're like, wow, that was, that was pretty weird. Another weird thing about LA is the local obsession with high-speed freeway car chases. You may have seen clips on YouTube of local news video shot from the air, either from a helicopter or I suppose more recently from a drone, of a vehicle careening in and out of all this traffic, pursued by half a dozen patrol cars, the whole thing breathlessly narrated by an overexcited news anchor who is trying to sound like a serious and sober-minded journalist, but honestly is having too much fun to pull it off. These high-speed chases may go on for mere minutes, or even sometimes for an hour or two, depending on the time of day and how good a driver the fugitive is. But every single one of them ends at some point. Occasionally, the ending is tragic. Even more occasionally, the criminal eludes pursuit and gets away. But most of the time, law enforcement officers get their man or get their woman and make an arrest. The bad guy or gal is apprehended, captured, taken into custody. I want to suggest to you this morning that we have misapprehended God. Not just misunderstood, not just misjudged. I think we have jumped into our V8 patrol cars, fired up the lights and sirens, and chased down the wrong guy altogether. We've made an arrest. We have reassured a fearful public that yes, indeed, God is the wrong deity to get on the wrong side of and we've booked him for being exactly the stingy majority shareholder 
that we always knew he was. Do not mismanage this dude's investments. The audit is coming, and you will have to account for every penny. This seems to me to be at least one of the points Jesus is making in this parable. Not just that we get God wrong, but that we use our misapprehension of God's character as a perfectly reasonable excuse to live small, terrified lives. What's more, rather than being harmless, our wrong-headed perceptions are hellacious. That is, they feel like hell. Friends, I come to you this morning joyfully bearing this good news. The God revealed in Jesus is not the armed and dangerous deity we apprehended at the Shell Station off the 101 freeway at Melrose. No, Jesus tells his disciples, who were the first listening audience for the parable of the talents. God is not who you believe God is. And continuing to believe the wrong thing about God has real and dire consequences for your life. Contrary to what you may have heard, perhaps many times, the parable of the talents is not primarily about being a responsible steward of your talents and abilities, prudently investing the gifts God has given to maximize your impact for his kingdom. Now, before you bust out the torches and the pitchforks, let me say this, being a prudent steward and making a kingdom impact certainly are not bad things in and of themselves. We are told and should, we are told to and should do those things. But that doesn't change this truth. This parable is not about that. They're not the point of this particular story. In fact, I'd go so far as to say that turning this parable into a morality tale misapprehends the picture of God that Jesus is sketching in the parable of the talents. So let's give the text in Matthew 25 a second look. The first thing you need to know is that a Roman imperial talent was a weight of gold roughly equivalent to that of a full-grown man, give or take a few pounds. So the amount of wealth that Jesus is talking about in this story is deliberately, absurdly large. It's astronomical. It is Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk money. It's so much money that the average human mind can't make mathematical sense of it. It's outside of human scale. Here's $5 billion for you, says the property owner in the parable, and $2 billion for you, and a measly $1 billion for you. Against all reason and all good sense, I completely trust you to know what to do with this hilariously, incomprehensibly huge chunk of change. And moreover, I feel totally at ease leaving town for an unspecified length of time. Bye. <laughs> that is the main character in Matthew's version of Jesus' parable. 
outlandishly generous, irresponsible even, careless. Heck, he's downright shameless. He's the very definition of profligate, which means wasteful and recklessly extravagant with riches. So the first two of his servants haul away their hundreds of pounds of gold and immediately get into their master's profligate spirit. How do I know? Because you do not double your money in the ancient world without taking some crazy risks. The rule of thumb today in our investor-friendly economic system is that you can reasonably expect to double your money every seven years, as long as nothing catastrophic happens, like, say, a once-in-a-generation mortgage lending crisis, or several years worth of skyrocketing inflation, or, for instance, the total evaporation of a purely imaginary form of currency. <laughs> Seven years ain't bad, right? But first century Palestine was not 21st century America, which is essentially purpose-built for prudent people who want to turn some starting capital into more capital. The ancient Roman Empire, by contrast, did not have Charles Schwab investment advisors to help you diversify your portfolio with balanced risk and biannual dividends. There was no stock market to distribute risk across many investors. Most financial ventures were all or nothing because all or nothing was all there was. Again, I want to emphasize the amounts of money Jesus is talking about here are straight up silly. He is not giving divine financial advice. He's not even using a financial metaphor to demonstrate a moral principle. Jesus is using extreme hyperbole to show that the first two servants are just as bonkers as their boss. They're not prudent investors. They're risk junkies whose big gambles happen to pay off. Now, lest you think that I'm the first preacher to come up with a novel interpretation of this parable, I want to read to you the commentary of St. John Chrysostom, one of the church's early fathers. He was the Bishop of Constantinople in the late fourth century. Here's what he says. For he who expends part in this way and part in that, even if he bestows much, has done no great thing. But he who expends all in this way, even though he gives little, has done the whole. For what is required is that we give not much or little, but never less than is in our power to give. Think on him, he says, think on him with the five talents and think on him with the two. According to St. John Chrysostom, the fearless all or nothingness of these servants' profligacy is to be not just admired, but imitated. Because they get it. The riches entrusted to them are undeserved, over-the-top gift all the way down. 
recklessly bestowed by a property owner who operates at a level of wealth so extreme that he measures gold in the hundreds of pounds and who trusts them to bet it all on black because they're, they're playing for the house and the house always wins. The first two servants rightly apprehend the character of their boss and they invest accordingly. But what about the third servant? The one who went home with a mere 180 pounds or so of gold. I gotta tell you, I feel so much kinship with this Brady cat. You know who has two thumbs and gnashes their teeth? This guy. Anxious people. When anxiety is getting the better of me, my grinding teeth are more than enough to make my dentist weep. For most of my young adult years, I lived with an undiagnosed anxiety disorder. And as anyone with unmanaged anxiety can testify, fear makes you dumb. Fear makes you believe dumb stuff like, my worry about this situation that's completely out of my control is sure to make a difference. Thinking about things obsessively will help me understand them more clearly. If I replay that painful conversation from the past just one more time, surely it will come out better. I can avoid costly mistakes if I avoid taking action. God is not safe if I fail. Even after my clinical anxiety was diagnosed and managed with varying degrees of success, my misapprehension of God remained a paralyzing source of fear. I kept chasing down the wrong God, the miserly Ebenezer Scrooge in the sky who is eager and waiting to bah humbug the smallest discrepancy in my account. Honestly, I even thought the parable of the talents was supporting evidence for my misapprehension. See, I pointed out to myself, the third servant doesn't give a good return on the master's investment, so he's abandoned to outer darkness. Don't mess up, Hawkins. I was so devoted to my misapprehension that I misread a parable about misapprehending God to mean what I already misapprehended about him. I told you fear makes you dumb. Friends, this is how dumb fear makes us. It urges us to take the third servant's misapprehensions as confirmation of our own. Fear makes us more ready to believe the third servant than to believe Jesus. I don't know how I missed this the first 317 times I heard or read this parable, but Jesus isn't being cryptic. He tells us exactly what kind of master the property owner is, the kind who entrusts some servants with uncountable wealth 
without detailed instructions for what they're supposed to do with it, and then skips town. Does that sound to you like a harsh man? A hard and demanding man, as the third servant believes? No, that sounds like a crazy man, an irresponsible man, a reckless and conspicuously profligate man with priorities that do not make mathematical sense. And according to Jesus, the teller of this tale, the third servant's fearful misapprehension of his master's character is his hellacious downfall. Robert Capon, an Episcopal priest who wrote extensively about Jesus' parables, reimagined the conversation between the property owner and the third servant, who in Father Robert's wonderful whimsical retelling is named Arthur. <laughs> I want to read part of that conversation to you as we begin our turn this morning toward the table where God in Christ will be present to us and in us. Could it be, might it be possible that maybe, just maybe, our fearful misapprehensions about who God is are a kind of hell? As I read, allow yourself a glimmer of hope that the God Jesus reveals is better than we have dared to believe. And then in the moment or two of quiet after I'm done, let yourself imagine just for a minute what you might do if God is actually as good as Jesus says he is. Father Robert writes, the gift of grace, Arthur, is not a reward for hard work or good behavior. It is a lark, a joke, a hilariously inequitable largesse. It is, in a word, a gift. Don't you see, Arthur? It's all a game. All that matters is that you play at all, not whether you play well or badly. You could have earned a million dollars with the money I gave you, or you could have earned two cents. You could even have blown it all on the horses for all I care. At least that way, you would have been a gambler after my own heart. But when you crawl in here and insult me, me, Mr. Risk himself, by telling, you, by telling me that you decided I couldn't be trusted, enough for you to gamble on a two-bit loss. That I was some legalistic type who went only by the books. 